Okay, sounds yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Naresh Kuntur. By training, I'm an electrical engineer. I got my PhD in at the University of Maryland. I have been working as a senior scientist in uh, and problems related to computer vision, pattern recognition, image processing, and machine learning. My interest in Sanskrit uh, goes back to really childhood, and I have kept it uh, uh, as, a, as a sort of a, uh, a parallel study now. And I teach at the Sanskrit Bharati uh, chapters here in the US. Uh, so for this paper, I have chosen to focus on uh, two uh, writings of Pollock, uh, the, the Language of the Gods book and the Death of Sanskrit paper. In addition to that, I've also uh, relied extensively on Pramila Thakur's uh, history of uh, India for the same period. And you'll see why I have chosen hers, uh, her work uh, as we go along. Um, so in, in this paper, I really break it down into three parts. I discuss a little bit about Sanskrit as a source of power in Bardock's estimation, and then how he uses this to develop the notion of a Sanskrit cosmopolis, and then uh, describing how he thinks of uh, the death of Sanskrit and why the death of the language was really inconsequential in the sense that no Indian knowledge really was affected by the death of Sanskrit. And I'll step in, uh, point to a few uh, next steps that I think uh, would uh, serve us well. Um, so throughout the writings of Pollock, we see a, a sense of uh, binarization between oral versus written, Kadya versus Shastra, Hinduism versus Buddhism, Paramarthika versus Yavaharika, and so on. So there is always a tendency to identify two groups or two entities, and then identify certain tools uh, of, uh, let us say, power, which one group uses to dominate over the other. So this is a recurring theme, and I think it is important to recognize the themes of the broad arguments uh, in addition to, of course, uh, understanding the details of the arguments in Pollock's uh, writings. So the first point uh, where we start this discussion is really to get a sense of what Pollock thinks of as a language and literature. So in his uh, description, a language becomes worthy of consideration only when there is a well-structured grammar, there is a literary ability, and of course, writing. Now, why does he consider writing to be important? He gives three reasons for this. Uh, firstly, that writing has a natural authority in the sense that writing requires a deliberate, intentional action on the part of uh, the person who is writing, whereas spoken languages have a certain uh, naturalness to them, in the sense that a kid picks up languages simply by listening to people around it. So there is no special effort involved in uh, producing a spoken language. So writing has a policy. Secondly, he considers writing to be richer than oral transmission. Now this richness is nothing to do with uh, writing flowery passages or the use of alankaras and so on. That this richness is really to do with 
the notion that writing alone and not spoken language can allow the examination of the language itself, which is to say that uh, you have a, a, a reason understanding of the grammar of a language and uh, all different aspects of the, the medium of communication and not just what is being described using the language. And thirdly, he considers writing to be important because writing can produce oral history and not oral languages. And these two points, the, the last two points about writing being richer than oral transmission and uh, writing uh, having the ability to produce history become important in his arguments to uh, say when a language is born and when a language dies. And so when a, a literature is endowed with writing, then alone uh, does he consider literature to become literature. So these are the kinds of phrases that one comes across in, in, in the book. Literature becoming literature and language becoming language and so on. So Sanskrit at some point, uh, we read, uh, became a source of power in this sense. And uh, several reasons are stated for saying why Sanskrit became a source of power that was employed by kings to, first of all, establish their legitimacy and then to go on to uh, expand their kingdom. So I, I won't go into all the reasons, but just highlight a couple of them here. One, that Sanskrit did not have a particular geographical localization. So one can say that Tamil is the language of Tamil Nadu and Marathi is the language of Maharashtra, whereas Sanskrit is as much a language of Bengal as it is of, let us say, Haryana. So this lack of geographical specificity gave it a certain universality which the kings then used to project their power. Secondly, the kings, uh, we are led to believe, used the grammar of Sanskrit to say that here I am using this language which has proper grammar, so it gives me proper speech, which leads to proper conduct, and hence my political uh, power projection is proper. And then we have the factor of Alankaras, uh, especially Shlesha, which uh, Pollock says was an important tool that uh, the poets and the kings uh, sort of symbolically uh, uh, used to enhance the king's power. And I'll come back to Prashasti in a couple of slides, but that occupies a central role in his description of why Sanskrit had a source of power for political power projection. And where do we sort of see the parallel coming from? And that is from the European notion of cosmopolis. And so he first starts off by uh, and setting up a narrative which is to uh, describe Sanskrit as a cosmopolis uh, using the European analogy. And I'll say a little bit about what the European cosmopolis uh, picture uh, that is painted uh, in, in the book. So we start the story with the Greeks, with their ideal city-states kind of a setup, where uh, the individual uh, accomplishment, the individual merit played a central role. And eventually, this was the golden age of the Greeks. Uh, but then the city-states started to go to war with each other. And before long, the cosmopolis replaced the city-states. In the cosmopolis, now the community becomes the key. So now we have the individual taking backstage and the 
common good becomes more important. But the story that it takes off in our uh, cosmopolis sense, when the Romans defeat the Greeks and they established the Roman Empire. Now they bring their Latin, which was a language in the middle of nowhere Italy, uh, and then use that language along with their military strength to expand their empire. And so in the Western Roman Empire, Latin becomes the universal language. Whereas in the Eastern Roman Empire, interestingly enough, Latin does not become as well established because Greek already has a deep and lasting connection there. This is not a distinction that is made in uh, the book, but uh, from history we know that. And then we can see that the first Latin literature appears around 240 BCE, uh, when a Greek slave adapts uh, an older Greek play into Latin. And here is a, a puzzle that Robert uh, draws using Ramayana as the first uh, Aditavya. And so uh, the, the, the analogy is that Valmiki was an outsider too to the, let us say, the, he was not a Brahmin, he was not a Chatriya, and so on. Uh, and so he uh, wrote uh, Ramayana, and, and just as Livius Andronicus, the Greek slave, uh, uh, put together the first Latin work of uh, literature. Naresh, sorry uh, to interrupt you. Uh, yes. We have lost your slides. So could you please put, oh. it, put it on screen share again? Okay, well, let me see. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Initially, we have a setup with your slides and then it's gone. Go to menu, call. Okay, I think I'm doing it, please. Do you see it now? Yes. Okay, perfect. All right, let me go back to full screen view. You still see it? Okay. Um, and so, Valmiki is considered sort of the, uh, the parallel to Olympias and Valmiki. And he uh, establishes the first uh, Greek then as the Valmiki. After this, the narrative poses a little bit of analogy. Uh, Rome continued to be the center of the European cosmopolis, whereas uh, Sanskrit did not really have that kind of centering. But Pollock comes back and says that uh, by the time uh, we see a decline in Latin, we also see a decline in Sanskrit. And just as Latin gave up its domination to the vernacular languages, Sanskrit gave up its domination to vernacular languages like Gujarati, Kannada, and so on. So this is the broad narrative that uh, we, we, we are told. And rest of all the, you know, the details of quotations and so on really is used to sort of uh, uh, set up this or further uh, develop this narrative. Uh, I say this because I think it is important to start from the perspective of what the overall narrative uh, that the product is describing is before we sort of get into the details of what this quote is or what this translation says and so on. Because all of those quotations really are quite selective, uh, as I'm sure other papers have seen, have described. In particular, uh, Dr. Mira Kanan's paper had uh, all the details uh, about the, the, the quotations that uh, Paul accuses in this regard. So, 
sort of, I think this kind of uh, analysis parallel will, will set this up uh, as we as we sort of come up with the response. Okay, this notion of the outsiders plays a big role in Pollock's uh, uh, hypothesis. Uh, in particular, uh, Rudradaman, who was this king in the second century BCE, figures quite uh, extensively in this uh, context. Now here, it's interesting to see the treatment that we see in the language of the God's book as compared to our historical treatment in Ramila Thapur's work. So both agree that uh, Rudradaman was important because he was probably the first of his kind to employ Sanskrit in his inscriptions. Question naturally is why did he do that? So Thapers offers uh, two possible reasons. She says maybe he used it because he wanted to please the orthodox uh, people of, of his time. Or she says maybe he used it because uh, he, uh, the Rudradaman recognized that uh, the society was changing and so he, he sort of went along with it. But she does not offer any definitive conclusion one way or the other and leaves it up to uh, the reader to make up his mind. But in the, the book, of course, there is no such hesitation. Uh, and Pollock says that the Rudraman used uh, uh, Sanskrit uh, uh, in his inscriptions solely for the purpose of establishing his legitimacy as a ruler. And this is where I uh, come back to saying that all the rest of the arguments sort of has to fit the narrative. And so there is no room for entertaining multiple possibilities uh, or questions uh, like the historian Tapur does. And the same story is told for why Buddhists switched uh, their uh, work from Pali to Sanskrit and so on. Now, Pollock recognizes that this argument doesn't quite work in the Vijayanagara context. And so there is a bit of hand waving there and uh, we won't uh, you know, belabor the point at this point. And as I mentioned earlier, Prashasti occupies a central role in uh, Pollock's hypothesis. Here again, it's instructive to see how uh, the historian Ramila Thapur treats Prashasti and how we see the treatment in uh, Language of the Dark book. So in uh, Ramila Thapur's estimation, Prashasti is something that is, yes, important, but she doesn't give too much of a credence to it. So she uses things like, phrases like, you know, one hesitates to take it literally. Uh, yes, it was all that important, but not all that important. And uh, both agree that as a literary, distinctive literary style, it started around the 2nd century BCE and gradually took place. Now, Thapur is clear that this style of uh, uh, literature had a gradual evolution. There was no sort of sudden break or, or, or start, but more gradual. This description is also sort of uh, consistently applied or can be applied consistently in the case of Karnataka's miracle uh, kind of literature, uh, which uh, uh, you cannot if you use uh, uh, the, the Pollock's worldview. And, and in sort of in stark contrast to Thapur's uh, take on this, in the language of the God's book, Prashasti becomes something that started suddenly and then uh, meet up simultaneously in different parts and uh, employed solely for the purpose of uh, uh, the king's royal power. Right? And uh, in, in Thapur, 
there is this gradual movement and she uh, explicitly states that there is no military kind of a, a, a backing to Prashasti, especially in the Southeast Asian context, where Prashasti spread through trade and uh, what we would call today as people-to-people -people contacts. So I think it's important to sort of understand the historical perspective uh, as explained in sort of, you know, even a, a left-leaning historian's book, uh, as opposed to, let us say, uh, the uh, language of the dogs book. Okay, and this is uh, the point that I made earlier about how we start with grand narrative first, and then use uh, sort of quotations and uh, uh, points to sort of substantiate the uh, narrative, rather than let the data take us where it wants us to go. And uh, I have a couple of examples here, but I won't get into the details of this, just to illustrate how translations can be, you know, uh, not all convincing. Uh, for example, in the, in the, he traces the notion of political power all the way back to Mahabharata and uses this uh, uh, quote uh, and translates Artha as power. And to say that Artha Sipurushodasu, etc., uh, can be thought of as man is slave to power, but power is slave to no one. Now, even seen in the context of uh, the, the discussion that Pishma uh, and Yudhishthira uh, are having, it is really hard to make a case for translating Artha as power. So, again, the same kind of a, 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 a thing is seen in this Canada quotation of how he translates Sarvavishaya uh, Pasha Jatigaru to magical species, uh, whereas pretty much every other uh, acting person before that had translated this more naturally as just languages. And so I, I won't uh, uh, get into the details of this quotation, but I think these kinds of uh, uh, translations need to be seen again uh, by far more complex people than I am. And finally, we turn to his notion of death of Sanskrit. And here, again, uh, he uses these three uh, cases of Kashmir Vijayantara, and, and finally says that by the time of Jagannatha, we see the last Sanskrit poet. Um, uh, again, this was uh, very well captured in the paper, so I won't repeat those points. Uh, but just to uh, uh, say that uh, here again, we see a marked difference between what we see at Tapper's book uh, and what we see in uh, Pollock's book. So, Tapper doesn't cut off the Muslim pillars very easily. Uh, in in uh, Pollock's book, it says that the Muslim rulers did not really cause the death of Sanskrit. In fact, they tried to revive it, but Sanskrit died despite their efforts. But in Tapper's book, she is very clear, especially when it comes to Muhammad Ghori and Basti that they really ransacked the place and brought about a huge social and societal change uh, which caused the destruction of any existing traditions. And so she does not uh, give Mohammed uh, Bukhari or Desmi a pass there. Uh, and the same thing, uh, so uh, in Pollock's book we see that uh, European colonial powers uh, don't really bear responsibility for the decline or the death of Sanskrit, but the death of Sanskrit in his estimation happened uh, despite their efforts to sustain and uh, promote Sanskrit. Um, and ultimately, it says that 
even though Sanskrit died, it really was not a big loss because there really was no original Indian knowledge to uh, uh, worry about in that sense. Uh, and so he says, for example, that pretty much all useful knowledge came from the West, and he gives a long list of examples to make this point. Uh, and ultimately, all of this sort of reads like uh, sort of a Hegel 2.0 kind of a thing. Uh, so the, in, in the aesthetics book, Hegel makes this rather harsh kinds of uh, comments to say that uh, uh, the, the Indians really had no useful thing besides some fantastical story. Um, and this is the kind of thinking that is reflected in Bollock's uh, uh, writings, although not to the same extent. And so you see things like westernization of the permanent and global phenomena. And so he, then he goes on this long passage and then says, well, one could say the same thing about westernization too, uh, to make the point that uh, there is some sort of universal knowledge, and once that knowledge is captured, if the language dies, well, so be it. And so uh, I'll skip this slide for the sake of time and come to the last slide. And so, as I was saying earlier, we are treated with uh, a narrative first, and then selective quotations. So where do we go from here? So one can, I think, think of three different responses for this. Uh, firstly, we go sort of point by point to all the uh, things that Bola uh, raises and then rebut it. This is necessary, but I think it's not sufficient. The other thing would then be to come up with an alternative narrative, right? So some kind of a, a, a grand narrative that is supported by what the traditional position is. That too, I think, has its pitfalls. Because a narrative really is only as good as you know, the story that we tell, right? So a narrative has to be grounded in much more than just another narrative. So here I think coming up with a well thought out, comprehensive, data-based approach I think will serve us well. Uh, and here I'm clearly reflecting my bias uh, coming from the technical field that I am in, uh, where we worry a lot about first building a data set and then asking the formulating questions that can be answered in some reasonable fashion. Uh, and I think building such a, such a data set uh, in a collaborative fashion uh, will serve the field well, because right now, you know, it, 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 it seems to be, you know, pick this quotation here, pick that quotation there, and then make up a story. That, I don't think, is a, a recipe for sort of a long-lasting, uh, successful kind of strategy. Which is why I think coming up with a, a well thought through comprehensive data set where uh, different epochs, different periods, and different texts, and what they sort of convey is comprehensively captured, uh, and then we sort of break down the problem into uh, uh, smaller questions that one can quantify and, and answer. This is not to say that a, quantifi a quantifiable analysis is sort of error free and uh, foolproof, uh, far from it, but it, overall I think it still has a better chance of uh, standing the test of time. Uh, I'll stop here and uh, happy to take questions. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, 
I would like to know, do you find any motive? What could be the motive of uh, interpretation of Polok in this way? Uh, what will be the motivation of interpreting? Interpreting, uh, oh, the entire interpretation is of a different kind. Uh, bringing power in terms of, I mean, not an academic uh, conclusion, but some kind of a uh, socio-political angle. Uh, do you, uh, can you, uh, what kind of a uh, sense of motive uh, you, you, you could gather from your study? So, I think there isn't really one single motivation that I could uh, make out. And, and, but I should preface this by saying, whatever the motivation, uh, the answer really has to come from a place of not really going after the motivation per se, but really presenting a case that is a positive one, that is constructive, and so on. But in terms of uh, his think thought process, right, there is a clear line that one can draw all the way to sort of Hegel's kind of thinking, where the motivation is very clear. It is, you know, the West is great, and all that is useful is in the West, and uh, these uh, Indians and other Eastern people, they, they don't know what they're talking about. So, of course, Paul doesn't say that, but the thought process that informs his writing. Uh, is one, uh, sorry, sorry to intervene. Uh, one area, one important area of intellectual development and contribution, namely the development of Navyanyaya. Development of? Navyanyaya. Have, have you heard the term Navyanyaya? Navyanyaya, you said? Uh, development of a, uh, Indian intellectual tradition of his day after 10th century AD. Nabhyanyaya. Uh, and contributing Nabhyanyaya. to develop, I mean, providing a language comparable to symbolic uh, language and which was adopted by almost all uh, scientific systems of knowledge to engage in uh, discourse. And uh, we, we, we do not find any reference to that. So it's a selective uh, piece uh, to fit into the uh, motive and justify the motive that what this, this, this is what it means. Am I right if I if I conclude in this way? Yeah, I think so. There is a lot of selectivism going on, which is I think why we should uh, come up with a more comprehensive kind of analysis. But yes, thank you. To take one last question for this. So, regarding your three approaches, specific rebuttal, alternative narrative, and data-driven narrative, uh, I agree with you that the data-driven narrative would be the best. But what's the feasibility? Because you don't have all the data available, you'll have a sparse matrix. And even to gather that sparse matrix will take a very long time. And then you'll be subject to criticism that you have done since you have only got some data, it's not exhaustive, you don't have all the data about all the periods in all the kingdoms. So you have, you, you know, it's exactly like the criticism we give to Pollock that his analysis of Prashasti is not exhaustive. You know, he's just picked some Prashastis and made some conclusions. So given that we're talking about an old period of history with very little data available, uh, what do you think of that in terms of 
viability, it may be very ideally desirable, but is it viable? And are you better off doing the first two, which are achievable, and at least establish some credibility, and then buy the time to uh, do the long-term one? Sure. So I think there has to be a certain degree of parallelism here. Uh, especially with the first one, that has to happen sort of right away as we go along, right? So, rebutting the specific points and translations and quotes and so on. But I think, and, and there can be some sort of intermediate narrative that you offer as an alternative. But I think even that sort of stands the risk of being criticized for being an incomplete or a, a, a not quite fully there kind of narrative. Which is why I think even if building such a data set is difficult, uh, I think it's still worth doing. And this kind of uh, a problem that you mentioned about uh, not having a complete data set and so on is true in other fields as well. And still we manage to make progress by asking the kinds of questions that we can ask and not sort of starting off with a complete question right off the bat, but breaking down the questions Okay, in this part of the thing, what can we say about this uh, 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 subset of, uh, let us say, issues? So that kind of breakdown, I think, will uh, uh, convince ourselves of the methodology first, and then we'll sort of scale it up. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't do the specific rebuttal kind of a thing, which of course is necessary, but I think it's not sufficient. And in terms of viability, I think here is where uh, a notion of collaborative research and building a data set in a collaborative manner comes into being. And uh, that's the kind of thing that we do in our field as well, where we're collecting you know, millions and millions of images and millions and millions of videos. Uh, and there is a lot of collaboration involved between various groups and to set up what kinds of problems that we can tackle and we cannot, uh, and what is the confidence in the answer that we give. So, the same kind of criticism one could make there as well, and still the fields are making progress. Nariyashi, one uh, final question. Uh, one set of data that could fairly easily be verified, and that Sheldon Pollock seems to have used, is those pertaining to perhaps the most surprising part of his thesis, namely that the Muslim kings, rather than destroying Sanskrit, tried to revive it. When we see that the Muslim courts uh, from the beginning till the very end, always used Persian as their court language, never bothered to learn an Indian language. And so why should they suddenly care so much about Sanskrit? Absolutely. I think this is an easy one to answer, as you pointed out, uh, not only because uh, of the point that you made, but also because there is a lot of existing sort of historical accounts which uh, our uh, uh, sort of establishment historians have uh, given to us. So we should use that data that they have compiled to answer this question. And, and I think it is a, 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 a reasonable first uh, kind of a step that we can take. Okay, thank you. We have unfortunately uh, 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 one question. Uh, Last okay. one. Okay, one last question. So uh, why is that uh, the alternative? Uh, alternative narrative that you mentioned uh, will not succeed uh, and the Pollock's type of narrative succeeds because whenever I discuss with other people they say oh that's Bharti with their own kind of narrative I mean that's not rigorous I mean, is that uh, I mean you know is there a fear that alternative narrative cannot succeed at all uh, I think so 
and uh, here I should sort of state my bias up front. Uh, coming from a field that, you know, like electrical engineering, where really analytical building is not what we do, but we sort of use data to at least give us a semblance of uh, comfort in what they're saying. So that is a, a bias up front. But apart from that, I think an alternative narrative runs into the same kinds of pitfalls that the Pollock narrative can uh, offer, uh, which is to say that. Uh, Somebody else can say, well, what about this text? Well, what about this quote? How does it fit in? And that kind of uh, specific rebuttal again, uh, if we get bogged down in, we are back to square one. And so we don't really uh, see a way that is clean and nice to uh, sort of answer, yes, there might be this one quotation that there is an outlier, but really 90% or 95% of the quotation point to this. And that kind of an aggregate kind of a, a, a inference, one really cannot, I think, make uh, using a simple sort of an alternative narrative by selectively uh, picking a, a text that suit an alternative narrative. All right. Okay. Uh,